0: So I would like to talk to you this morning about um, where we're headed in our next next teaching series. Uh, I believe it would be good and wise um, for us to talk about this before we jump into it. So this morning I'm going to kind of take some time to explain where I sense would be wise and then talk directly about where we're going. But I won't be going into the, the... The book uh, technically this morning. We won't be like exegeting chapter one. Um, I want to sort of lay the table for it, give some background on it, and explain why I think it would be a good place to go uh, for a little while. As we've moved from from Christmas and Advent deeper into the new year, as I've shared with you before and in the different messages, I've had a growing burden for myself. I've had a growing burden for for my church. Um, I've had an increased sense of like pastorally, how much more as as I try to serve you guys pastorally, this burden needs to be infused in how I care for you, how I think about our church. Um, and, and, and I don't think, you know, when I talk about the burden that I have, um, I don't think it's, as you hear it, I don't think it's too risky. <laughs> because the burden I have is simply the overarching theme of all the Bible. Um, I don't mean that I want to... My burden is the whole Bible. My my burden is the point of the whole Bible. And and so what I want to offer you, what I believe is a wise and good place for us to meditate, especially on right now, is the theme of the glory of God. The glory of God. Um, And and perhaps if I could uh, put this sense of call into words, it it might be heard as something like what the Lord spoke to Aaron and Moses in Leviticus 3, When Moses said to Aaron, trying to care for him in a terrible crisis that his sons had experienced and the loss of their lives. He he said to Aaron, he said, this is what the Lord meant, Aaron, when he said, and this is what the Lord said, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. That's that's what I feel as as a burden, this is where I think it would be good for us to pause and meditate on. This idea when God says in Leviticus 3, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy and before all the people, I will be glorified. God is glorious and he is to be treated as glorious. God is a holy God and he's to be treated as a holy God. And as believers in the new covenant, forged by the blood of Christ and established and sustained by the very Holy Spirit of Christ, this isn't said to us as a command. I don't want you to hear this simply as a command. As if God was on one side of the room waiting for you to glorify him, waiting for you to treat him as holy, waiting for you to do your job of recognizing his glory. And treating him that way. No, it, it's not that. It's it's the fact that the, the revealing of God's glory and the right response in us to that glory is the whole purpose of God's salvation for us in Christ Jesus. In other words, yes, God is calling us to treat him as holy. It's not that it's not that, but it's also that that is what God is doing in us. That is the whole point of salvation. God is the one, primarily, not only commanding that we glorify him, but working that in our hearts. That is salvation. As we've talked about recently, our ability to rightly see and treasure God, to really, actually, not by rote, or because our parents tell us to, or because it's what they did, or because you know, church is a good thing, but to actually really love him and worship him and revere him for who he is, to, to do, and to do that so much that everything else takes second place, third place, fourth place, 168th place in our lives, to be actually capable of doing that, that is why Jesus saved you. That is why Jesus died on the cross and rose again. That is why he unites us with himself before the cross. Puts to death on that cross our old selves. Through his blood as a satisfaction for our sin of putting everything else above God. Why he makes us new creations. Why he's growing us into perfect image bearers who, because they rightly see him for who he is, because on that final day, they, you and I, will see him for everything he really is, for the true treasure he really is, will be transformed into that perfect reflection of the treasure that he is. So if, if I could fulfill the truth of, if we could fulfill the truth of, I am glorious, so you are to treat me as glorious. If we could do that, we wouldn't need Jesus. We wouldn't need the cross. There'd be no point. He would just be sitting waiting for us to do this. But he isn't. That's why he laid down his life. That's why he lives in us. So we have a lot of hope as we pursue this, as we say, let's, let's glorify God. Let's see him for who he is. That's joining God in his most important work in our lives. As God's redeemed people, we are in the midst of his promises that he made through Habakkuk 2.14. Listen to this promise in Habakkuk 2.14. Just slow down with me and listen to this promise. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is God's ultimate goal for all of creation on this world or the new heavens and the earth. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There is a day coming when the glory of God will be seen and cherished and filling up hearts so much in this world that it will be analogous to the waters covering the sea. And stop and think about this. (laughs) How do the waters cover the sea? I mean, if you took took a percentage of the oceans and sought the answer to this question, how much of the oceans is water? (laughs) Right? All of it. That's all there is. It, that's what it means to be the sea. You're all water. That's how much God's glory will fill the earth. There's a day coming when no one will miss it. No one will be able to take a step without realizing, I. every step I take is sustained by the molecules of almighty God in this concrete or this grass or this mountainside. No one will be able to take a breath of air without realizing every single moment I'm breathing in his love. I'm breathing in his provision It will just fill everything. It will fill everything, and it will lead to rejoicing. It will lead to rejoicing. But before I go too far, I want to be careful, so forgive me if this feels redundant, but I just want to be really careful to not assume that we understand this term, glory. I know I've talked about this before, but I want to do it again. It's one of these words that I think is so is as well used as that it is poorly understood. The word glory, I think, is one of these words that it's as well used as it, as it is poorly understood. My best estimation is that we sing it a lot as Christians, we read it a lot, we preach it a lot, but I think we understand it less than we encounter it spoken and sung and read. And I hope by now that through recent messages, you might have a better grasp than you had uh, a, a month or two ago. But if not, I want to offer you um, maybe some helpful ways to, to grasp this idea of what glory is. I, I think uh, 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 the definition is is not easy. It's like trying to explain what beauty is. But but if I could put it into words, I think it, like as simply as I can, just as like a a placeholder for a lot of other things that go into it, like a foundational understanding, I would say, I think we can say the glory of God is the worth of God made perceivable. The glory of God is his worth made perceivable, made understandable. The glory of God is the worth of God made perceivable. Now, it's absolutely true that God is worth a great deal, whether I perceive it or not. His worth is inestimable. It is beyond limit. His love is everlasting. His righteousness is infinite. His power is almighty. His wisdom and intelligence, they do not have an end to them. And so his worth is infinite. And whether I perceive that or not, whether I believe that or not, whether I see that or not, God is infinite in value. He is worthy. He is worthy. His worth is infinite. It doesn't matter if I get that or not in terms of him. Like what his actual value is. Somebody once said, you know, if you don't get Shakespeare, it says more about you than it says about Shakespeare. (laughs) Right? Shakespeare, (laughs) that stuff. Right? Shakespeare is not the one being judged in that moment by all accounts. Sorry if you don't like Shakespeare. (laughs) but but it but it's much more so with God if if you don't get God's glory if you don't treasure him if we don't adore him if we don't worship him if we're not filled with affection for him it doesn't mean that there's any problem with him the problem is all in us so he's worthy whether or not we appraise him as worthy or not but when i do see his infinite worth When I do perceive his value, when I can sense in my heart that he is a treasure beyond all treasures, then I'm seeing his glory. Then he is glorified in me. Or rather, maybe a better technical way to use that preposition would say, to use a preposition, he's being glorified to me. So, seeing God's glory is the getting it of his worth. It's the treasuring him. And and as, as we've said before, this is more than an intellectual experience. If it is only an intellectual experience, if it's only an affirmation of doctrine, and saying, yes, he's glorious, yes, he's worthy, yes, he's holy, yes, he's the Son of God, yes, he's the Father Almighty, yes, he's the Holy Spirit, if, if that's where it is, primarily in us, and that's sort of where it ends, then he's not being seen. You're not seeing his glory. I'm not seeing his glory. Seeing God's glory, really seeing it, it if you really see it, it changes you. It doesn't change him, but it changes you when you really see it. When someone truly perceives God's glory, it it does not only affect their intellectual understanding. And and as a church that has historically prized correct doctrine, which is an amazing thing to be able to have a sense that doctrine is important and we want to be careful about it. (laughs) The last thing I want to do is, doctrine is crucial. It's just not enough. Because when someone truly perceives God's glory, when they really get the truth about him, it does not only affect their intellectual understanding, it affects every part of their soul, their emotions, their will, and their desires. And then their actions. Think about what happens in Scripture when various people are described as having encounters with the Lord, true encounters where they really perceive who he is, where we would say either explicitly because of the text or we would just intuitively be able to grasp by the situation, they saw his glory. Think about it. Think about when Jesus explains this. We've used this example a couple of times. Remember, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you see me, in John 8, You see me, but you want to kill me. (laughs) And, And this man, Abraham, that you call your father, that you take such pride in, he saw me and he rejoiced. So Jesus is saying, one of you saw my glory and one of you is blind as a bat to it. Abraham rejoiced when he saw my day. You see my day and you want to kill me. They couldn't have more opposite sensitivities to the truth of who God is. In John 20 when Thomas, doubting Thomas, everybody everybody's most compassionately relatable disciple, when maybe when Thomas truly comes to see the wounds and the pierced side of the resurrected Lord, he bows in awe. And he worships Jesus, and he says, "My Lord and my God." He didn't just put his fingers in the side and his fingers in the in the in the you know the the nail piece and say, "Well, he did rise from the dead." Gosh darn it, I was wrong. I apologize, Jesus. I apologize, fellow apostles. You were right. I was wrong. I'm so glad that now I have a correct understanding of the resurrection. No, he. He loses it completely. He goes farther maybe than anybody in the New Testament pre-resurrection does in attesting to the divine nature of Christ. Possibly, don't quote me on that, but certainly more than most people. He says, my Lord and my God. He straight up says, you are God Almighty. In Revelation 1, John sees the ascended Christ in some manifestation of his ascended glory and, and his reaction is, he doesn't just say, so this is what you look like at the Father's right hand. I just, I never knew it was going to be this fascinating and interesting. No, he, he falls down, he says, I fell down as dead, as if I was dead. When I comprehended this. And Jesus encourages him, he says, don't be afraid. I'm for you. In Luke 19, when Zacchaeus, the tax collector, when he perceives with the invisible eyes of his heart the glory of God in in the goodness and in the reconciling love of Jesus, what does he do? He gives back all he has stolen and he offers to pay back four times to anyone he's defrauded. Rather, he gives back all that he owed people that he... He took too much from, and then he says, and if I've stolen anything more, I'm gonna give back four times as much. What happened to him? Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. He didn't get saved because he made some bargain. Okay, Lord, I'll give back this money. Will you save me? No, Jesus is saying, look at what's happened to him. Look at how his heart has changed. This is a man who has been saved. He has seen my glory. He understands in a salvific way, about the heart of God in me. In Acts 9, you guys know this story, most of you, is when Saul, the hardened Pharisee, as zealous and hard about God as maybe as an Al-Qaeda member, in, in terms of his severity, of what he's willing to do. He'd been persecuting, chasing down Stopping, trying to, and agreeing to the killing of Christians. When God reveals his glory to Saul, this religious terrorist, he doesn't just say, I was wrong about Jesus. I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. I mean, That would be good. That would be powerful heart change. But he sees Jesus so well, he says, I am going to spend the rest of my life proclaiming this gospel and that is all i'm going to do if i have to make tents to support it i'll do some tent making but my whole life is now going to be evangelism and building up planted churches he stopped trying to kill christians and instead he laid down his life for them In isaiah 6 isaiah sees the glory of god filling the temple He's a priest. He knows the Bible, the scriptures as they had them. It was his job to be a priest in Israel. It wasn't the first time he'd been around the things of God. He'd been around the things of God his whole life, and his whole vocational ministry was to be about the things of God, understanding the word, ministering in the temple for God's people. Religion was his life. But one day, he saw God for real in a way he'd never seen God for real. And what, hap- what does he say? He says, Isaiah 6. He sees the glory of the Lord filling the temple. And what happens to him? He says, I am done for. I am obliterated. I have seen the glory of God. And I cannot s- live anymore. And then God shows him another picture of his glory. He says, Isaiah, I have atoned for your sin. And Isaiah says, send me, send me out. I, will, I want to do whatever you want me to do with my life. I'm here to do your will, Lord. What do you want me to do? He's changed because for the first time in his life, he really, really, really sees the glory of God. Well, at least in a way that he'd never seen before. I want to be careful. I don't know that, you know, I, I don't want to create a binary sense either. As if, as if we all either see God's glory perfectly or none of us see God's glory. That's not the picture Scripture gives. But at the same time, I I, I just want to say that when you see God's glory, to the degree that you do see God's glory, if you are really seeing God's glory, you are changed by it. One of my favorite examples, and I want to go a little bit deeper into this one, is in Luke 7. And if you want to, and you have Luke 7, you can go there. I'm just going to read a portion of scripture from Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. And, and I love this picture because the contrast here is so great between someone who has seen the glory of God in Jesus <coughs> and those who don't see the glory of God in Jesus I'm going to start at verse 36. And and in this picture, you have a sinful woman. And almost, you know, from everything I know, this is, it doesn't say it explicitly in text, but she's almost surely a prostitute. So this is a, a prostitute. And she perceives in Jesus something. She sees something. That everyone else in this story is blind to. Now one of the Pharisees, verse 36, now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And when you hear the word Pharisees, some of you may not be familiar with it. It's a religious leader. You might think of a reverend or a pastor like me. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And just to understand what's going on here, in in the customs of the day, your feet were the dirtiest, grossest part of you. So when you went to eat at someone's house, you wanted to get your feet as far away from the food as you could. So you would basically like lean against the table like this and put your feet out. See what I'm doing? The food would be here, and your feet, which were sandaled up, so they were exposed all day to what was around in a place where there were no toilets, right? And where animals roamed freely. And they were walking around all day in that. You get those feet, you get those dogs way out, (laughs) and then you put your hand in the unleavened bread and the yummy lamb or whatever you were eating. And it says here when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And just to jump ahead, this is not Mary that does this in John 12, this is an earlier situation. We don't know this woman's name. Verse 38. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping. So his, his face is towards the food and so his back is inclined towards the food and, so, and his feet are way out here. That's why it says she stood behind him. It doesn't mean that he's standing and she's right back there. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So she starts crying. She just gets near him, and she starts crying. She's a, she's a whore. And she gets near Jesus, and she starts sobbing. And her tears fall on his feet. And she gets an idea. I'm just going to keep this going. I'm going to wash him. She takes her hair. Probably long hair. And she puts her hair like napkins all over his feet. What's, her, what's getting in her hair? <laughs> it's not good stuff. It's, it's not dishwash detergent. <laughs> it's the other direction of stuff. And she's getting all that in her hair. And then she kisses them and pours perfume on them. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, "Uh, he doesn't, Simon doesn't audible this, he doesn't say these words. But Jesus knows everything that's going on in his heart. And he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. So one man owed him 10 times as much as the other. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman. So he looks towards her. Everything he's about to say, he's looking at her. And he's talking to Simon. All these things Jesus just mentioned were customary things to do for a guest. Jesus is supposedly an honored guest. Simon calls him teacher, honored teacher, rabbi. It was, a, it was a, an honorable title. That's what Simon says with his lips. But in his heart, he's not honoring the Lord. In his heart, he says, this is no prophet. In his heart, he didn't invite Jesus to share a meal. He invited Jesus to test him and inspect him. But he's too hypocritical to admit it. He's being polite. Okay, teacher. Yes, teacher. Right after he says, he's no prophet. He doesn't even know who this this filthy woman is. So he doesn't do any of the basic just customs of the day to give Jesus a bowl to, to wash his feet before he eats the meal. That, that wasn't rocket science to do as a hospital, sign of hospitality. He doesn't greet him with a kiss. He doesn't give him any oil for his head to, to, as an honored guest might receive. So Jesus says, look what this woman's doing. And then Jesus said, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Because she loved much. And and by the way, this is important to stop here. He's not saying, because she loves me so much, I'm forgiving her sins. He's saying, the result of her sins being forgiven is that she's loving me so much. So in other words, here's the proof that her sins are forgiven. She loves me. Here's the proof that she's really seen me and really knows me. She loves me. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Who is this who forgives sins? I I shouldn't even said it like that because I don't think that's the inflection point. Who is this man who can forgive? I think they're just doubting, just like Simon. Who is this guy saying he forgives sins? In another place it said, only God forgives sins. In a story in Mark 1, I believe. Jesus said to the woman, your faith have saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. What is faith? The assurance of things not seen. Faith sees with the heart what the eyes can't see by their cells and retinas and corneas. Real, saving, authentic faith perceives the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so what I'm talking about is something super important. Saving faith, real faith, is not an intellectual assent to a set of doctrines. It is perceiving the worth of of who God truly is, really, with the eyes of your heart. See, Simon doesn't do anything like what this woman does because he doesn't see Jesus. He doesn't believe in Jesus. He doesn't have faith in Jesus, i.e., he doesn't see Jesus. He is blind to Jesus, crucially, deadly blind to Jesus. And the guests they ask after hearing Jesus pronounce forgiveness likewise revealed their blindness who is this man who forgives sins because they don't see him they don't see him they're blind but this woman this prostitute who's lived a life of sin to her god has shown Jesus heart his heart for her she sees his glory and it is so much more to her than a state of facts And, and again, I, I want to, by way of a similar story in John twelve, I, I want to I want to be careful here. There's a similar story in in John twelve where Mary, following what we did last week, following the raising of Lazarus. remember Lazarus's sisters, Martha and mary, and And if you were here last week, they were the objects of Jesus' concern. Did they see him? Did they believe in him as they should? And in John 12, Mary kind of answers with her resounding, okay, Lord, I see you. I see you. I see you now. Because she takes this year's salary worth of perfume and she pours it all over Jesus' feet, similar to what this woman does. And and the disciples rebuke her. I, in one I think in one synoptic gospel, Judas does, but in other gospels in this story, everybody rebukes her. The disciples are like, "What are you doing? That's like 50, 5,000 dollars worth of perfume. It's crazy that you have that, and what are you doing with it? You're wasting it all on Jesus' feet. These are his disciples. They've been with him three years. They've seen all his miracles. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him heal the blind. They just saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. They're his disciples. He loves them. They are saved. But they don't see it very well. They don't see him very well. He rebukes them because they see so little of his glory. And he rebukes them because she sees so much better his glory. He says, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing for me. All that's to say, when we really grasp God's worth, when we really see his glory, we respond, not just with our minds, but with our whole hearts. And this happens in in punctuated, life-changing moments of great crisis and great uh, moments where you, you, you have the mountaintop experience where you see God and he resets things in your life that need to be reset. But it also happens in the quiet progression, pr- pr- the quiet accumulation of a thousand devotionals, of a thousand moments where in the heat of some temptation you go to him and you ask him for help. I, I want to be careful not to create this rubric of you're only seeing God in the great crisis and the great epiphany. There are these cataclysmic moments of our life where God grabs us by the lapels and illuminates our eyes to see some aspect of himself that changes our lives forever in ways that are you know we keep, we would say greatest hits of our lives greatest moments of our lives but he, we see his glory in a like I said a 400,000 other quieter moments as well when we turn to him in faith in quiet ways nobody notices and that we might forget in a few days. But the point is, Martin Luther knew what he was saying when he said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It changes us. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that really saves, it's never alone. It changes us. John said it this way in 1 John 3. He said, whoever whoever lives in him cannot continue making a practice of sin. Indeed, he is not even able to do so because his seed, the Holy Spirit, lives in him. Life change will and must result when someone truly sees the glory of God when someone really believes. And so when I say that I sense that it's important for us to pay special attention to God's glory in this season, I'm not simply saying we need lectures on glory, as helpful as those might be. No, we need what only God can do, which is to open our eyes wider, maybe for some of us for the very first time, but Lord willing for for. For most of us wider and wider to his value to his worth to his beauty such that our whole hearts are affected that's why by the way one of the reasons why i ask for prayers each week and i thank you for not growing tired of them sometimes i i often feel i'm bugging you again when i text some of you guys for prayer i ask for prayers each week because i know that what i'm trying to do i cannot do the change I'm hoping to be a means of God's grace for is a change I cannot produce in myself, much less you. So, God's glory. Recently, I've I've grown fond of the word treasure when I've thought about God's glory. I've been thinking about what it means to see God's glory, and, and I felt like, uh, even apart from, I know John Piper will use that word, but I, I feel like I'm able to grasp that in a way that's not just parroting John Piper, but, but recognizing that a, a helpful way for my mind to define whether I'm seeing God's glory is to ask myself the question, am I treasuring him? I love that because it, 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 it makes it clear it's not just a matter of intellectual assent or doctrinal affirmation. It's, a, it's a, a wholeheartedness. Yes, you have to know the truth about God. But when you, when you treasure it, that truth matters to you. Like it, some, even scintilla of the way it mattered to that sinful woman. It mattered to her. She was his treasure. So I'm asking myself, Lord, do I treasure you? Lord, help me treasure you. And glorifying God. If I treasure him, I'm seeing his glory. And then glorifying him in my life would mean that I'm living my life in such a way That I say to those around me, to my kids, to my wife, to you, to my neighbors, that I'm living in such a way that somehow I'm communicating to them, he is a treasure. He's a treasure. He is my treasure. He is my greatest treasure. Oh, Lord. Now that, he is my greatest treasure. That is a Jesus-sized goal, isn't it? To be able to say and walk and breathe, he is my greatest treasure to be able to say that in truth, that is a son of God on the cross dying for all people goal, isn't it? Isn't that a goal worthy of the blood of the son of God? I mean, that is a big Herculean boulder to push up a mountain, to say, he is my greatest treasure. Kids, wife, house, car, job fears, health fears, he is my greatest treasure. Pornography, He's my greatest treasure, not you. My phone, my beep, beep phone. (laughs) He is my greatest treasure. Not scrolling for the next four hours. To be able to say that consistently, continually, truly, maybe not perfectly, but increasingly, That's the kind of boulder it takes the Son of God shedding his blood on the cross for us to achieve. And I am am so hopeful when I'm saying these words to you because I'm realizing even now, right now, he's able. If, If he wasn't willing to pay a really heavy price, then looking at all the ways that I don't treasure him, the way that I should treasure him, would be hopeless. But I've seen how serious he is, how committed he is to move that boulder, to give his people the power to be delivered from the tyranny of other treasures above him. And he can do this. This is what he came to do for his glory, for his being exalted, which is equal to your everlasting and only real joy. So before I move in, one of the applications, and I'm just going to cut to the chase right now, is I would just like us to pray this prayer in in all kinds of creative and different ways. and I, I can send some scriptures out, but I'd like this to be a prayer for us in this season. Lord, be treasured in my heart above all things. This is what you bled and died for. This is Like This is how serious you are about this goal. And so I know you're up to it. And I'd like to invite you to pray this Tuesday night. I'd like to be here and online with whoever will be here from 7 to 9. And just take two hours this Tuesday night. You know, I, I'm not ready to start some like eight-week series of prayer. Maybe after Tuesday night, we'll have some more sense of some burden for that. But I'm just asking you all, whoever of you can, just lay aside Tuesday night and join us online or come in this room with a mask and let's just get on our knees and we'll put everything else second. We'll put our... We'll put our marriages, our kids, our diseases, our health issues, our job issues, our sorrows, our fears, our hopes, our dreams. We'll put them either all under that or we'll ask Him to make Himself our treasure through those things. Through how He meets us in our parenting, through how He meets us in how we deal with our phone, through how He meets us in our battle with pornography. But we won't just say, Lord, please set me free from pornography. Lord, help me to stop being angry with my kids. We'll say, Lord, be my treasure such that I lay this down. Be my treasure such that my kids can feel it and see it in my heart and the way I change. Because that's the only real, like, that's the most worthy prayer to pray to him. Be my treasure in these things. Yes, I want to be free. I want to have joy. I don't want to destroy my life with addictions. But please do it in such a way that you are exalted in my heart above all things. Not that I'm able to be polite and civil now. Not that I'm able to not lose my wife or put this thing back together. I I don't want to stop there. That's great. But I want that to be the second Headline underneath, you know, in, in newspapers, they have headlines, right? You have like, um, what, uh, Joe Biden sworn in as the 46th president. And then after you'll have some little thing under here, you know, a, a, a day marked with, you know, difficulties and celebrations, you know, so the, 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 the Biden as president will be in uh, like 68 font, right? It'll be huge. And then the uh, a day marked with, with difficulties and celebrations will be in like 25 font, right? I think of the story of our lives that way. Does God care about your divorce or your leukemia or your kid's addiction or your job uh, loss? Absolutely he does. Does he want, or does he want through the resolution of that job situation or your divorce or your, um, your leukemia, does he want his response to that to be the, 50, the 64 font headline or does he want it to be the 22 font headline? He wants it to be on the front page of your life. He wants it, it matters to him, he cares about you, but he wants it to be the 22.1. He wants the big headline to be, I learned and saw how good God is. He set me free from my addiction. I learned that his compassion is overwhelmingly incredible. I got a new job. I learned that he is so patient with me, so much more patient and kind than I ever thought he was. Jen took me back and we got married. That was my headline in 2007. I learned that he was sovereign. I learned that I couldn't try hard enough to screw up this relationship. And that I had such a blindness to the gospel and to his goodness that it it froze me with fear about being committed to my wife or my fiance. And she dumped me and brought the ring back and put it on my desk in 2005. And I went into a terrible depression And it drove me into the gospel like I had never been driven before besides the day I was saved. And at the end of that process, whether Jen took me back and whether we were able to get married, I say this truthfully to you. As much as I love my wife, it it didn't matter so much. My heart was healing. My heart wasn't broken. My life wasn't going to be destroyed, regardless of whether Jen took me back or not. Because God was glorious to me. He was sufficient. He was gentle. He was patient. He was, that cross was so darn rugged. I couldn't believe it. How patient he was, how kind he was, how gentle he was. That was the, you know, by the time I put that ring back on her finger, in my heart, that was the 56th point headline. God is a savior. And underneath it, he was even able to put this relationship back together for marriage. They were both on the on the masthead of my life. They were both on the front page. It's just, I needed that, who God is one to be 56 point or 64 point. I, I needed that that's what you need it's what you need more than the cure or the job or the marriage <sighs> so what does all this have to do with where we're going so i mean in one sense obviously it it it, it it's what we're always about But I want to talk a little bit about where we can maybe start to walk next um, in in this matter of, of treasuring God and seeing him for all he is. And again, in one sense, seeing and treasuring God forever through Jesus Christ is the whole plan of redemption. Every book of the Bible we study, every song that we sing, if it's biblical, everything we do as a church, if it's biblical, will be in keeping with that goal. But there are realities concerning where we are as a church corporately, where we are as individuals, as, individualies, as individuals, in our families, in our culture, that I, I think can be served by spending uh, some weeks in a little book called Malachi in the end of the Old Testament. It's the last book of the Old Testament. And I. it is not the end of God's glory. It doesn't even give us the fullest picture of God's glory. But I, I think... Malachi is helpful because it's a book in which God speaks in some of the frankest and most stark and most direct and most common language of his great concern for his being treasured. That's really the the big theme in the book directly. It's not an indirect thing. It's, it's, It's right there from the very beginning. God's concern that he's not being treasured as he should be being treasured. The whole of this little book might be represented by uh, verses 4 and 11 in the first chapter, where the Lord speaks and he says, a son honors his father, a servant his master, but if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me? Says Yahweh of hosts, to you priests who despise my name, And then in verse 11, for my name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of hosts. The people in Malachi's time were losing their spiritual sight. They were going blind to the glory of God and it was showing. And again and again, the Lord says to his people, my beloved people, listen to me. You need to consider who I really am and give me the honor that I really deserve. I am calling you to treat me right because I am worth it. And I am not playing games. I am worth it. God had established Israel through Moses in 1446. That's a a good date for the Exodus. And and centuries later, he sets up the monarchy with Saul and King David around 1000, 1,000 B.C. And after David's son Solomon dies, Israel splits into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom of Israel with 10 tribes in it, and there's the southern kingdom of Israel with two tribes, Judah and then Benjamin. They, they live together in Judah or the southern kingdom of Israel. The ten tribes of northern Israel, they fall into an idolatry again and again and again. God appeals to them again and again and again. Until finally he punishes them with destruction at the hands of Assyria in 722 B.C. And they're a nation no more. Never again. Southern Israel hangs on for a little while longer. They're made up of people, again, of Judah and Benjamin. It's where Jerusalem sits. And we call it Judah. Southern kingdom is Judah in terms of geography. When you think of the Jews in scripture after the the minor prophets or post-exile, you're almost always talking about the land of Judah and her inhabitants, mostly comprised of these two tribes. Anyway, the southern kingdom, Judah, eventually, though, fell into unrepentant exile, uh, unrepentant idolatry, and, and God sent them away out of the land. Around 600 B.C., he sends them to the Babylonians to live in Babylon, 70 years of punishment out of the land, expelled from the land but he promised to Judah that he would bring her back. He had a promise to keep to Judah, ultimately to all of Israel, through the Messiah that he would bring through Judah. So after 70 years, God brings Judah back to Jerusalem and the surrounding lands of Judah. And they were allowed to rebuild the temple. Finished at about 515, about 500 years before Jesus was born. And they're allowed to live as generally a free people again under the Persians who were Relatively speaking, who were pretty kind to them. But the problem is, after a few decades, their hearts became cold again to God. They had a honeymoon of sorts. But then they begin to grow tired of him again. They begin to devalue him. They begin to take him for granted. They begin to dishonor him and treat him of little value. In other words, they're not able to see his glory they re- they refuse his glory they they enter into some self-willed blindness he's not their treasure and the result of him not being their treasure of them not seeing him anymore was many they they denied his love for him for them they said you don't really love me they overlooked his great faithfulness to them in their history They polluted the temple by offering sacrifices that represented not the best of what they had, but the least of what they'd had. The priests no longer cared for the people. They no longer told them the truth. They were, in their instructions, they were trying to, whether they were being terse and impatient and angry, or they were being uh, people-pleasy, they were doing what they needed to do to just get by and get through. They weren't standing for God, and so the people were left without real instruction, without real shepherding, because the priests were either too afraid to say the hard things, or they didn't have kindness to say the the kind things, the gentle things they needed to say. They started to put their hope in money. Money started to become their God instead of God, and they started holding it back from him as he commanded them in the Mosaic Law to give money for tithes and offerings. They started to take sexual morality as a trifle thing. They, They started intermarrying with foreigners taking into their most intimate and important human relationships idolatry. After being exiled and destroyed because of idolatry they started bringing idolatry back into their marriages through marrying foreigners. God didn't he doesn't, you know, just be careful with that. He doesn't hate foreigners in, in, in the sense that you might think of that phrasing. He he hates idolatry, and idolatry came through foreigners in those days. And their lawful marriages, the the men who did take wives who were Hebrew wives who worshipped Yahweh, these men treated these wives with contempt because they didn't fear the Lord anymore. It wasn't an issue of whether their wives were pleasing or not pleasing. It was an issue of their lack of fear of God, their lack of seeing his glory. And they started to trash their wives. They would treat them like garbage and divorce them for, wh- for whatever reason they wanted to divorce them. So they abandoned their wives. They took God's patience with sinners. And they said, oh, you don't really care about evil. And either they thought you're not a just God or they thought we can get away with what we want to get away with. So they started to speak harshly about god in their hearts and they were as a result god doesn't care about justice they start treating the immigrant the sojourner the foreigner unfairly god cares about the immigrant and the foreigner they started treating the poor among them selfishly and cruelly they started treating their workers exploitatively and god talks about all these things but but here's what's so beautiful about this. While all, I mean beautiful in, in the, the beauty of scripture, the beauty of God's heart. While all these are terrible things that lead to all kinds of disorder and further destruction and cycles of destruction. All these sins are so clearly and obviously in Malachi sourced in something much worse. They're sourced in not having that 68 Helvetica headline above whatever other 22 Helvetica headline is. They're sourced in the fact that they don't treasure God as God. They don't see his glory. And that gives birth to all these lesser bastard children's sins because they did not treasure God in their hearts. They did not see his glory. And they did not treat him as glorious. And so what God does again and again and again in Malachi is he calls them to see that the root of all these sins is something much worse than all of these sins. It's their contempt, their disregard, their treating as an unholy thing, the glory of God. And so again and again in Malachi, God says in one way or another to uh, to all these things, I'm a great king. I'm a great father. I am the Lord Almighty. Where is the honor due me? And he's not speaking as if he's he's in some crisis, like, "Oh, I'm needy. I'm needy. I need my I need my affirmations from you people." No, for their sake, out of love for them, he's saying, "You don't know who I am. I'm a great king. I'm not going to have my glory distorted and held in contempt." God says this again and again because their healing is not first in changing their behavior. Though that is part of it and can complement it. And I don't want to say that their actions have no consequence. But the foundation of their healing is going to be found in recognizing who God is. The fuel for their healing is going to be found in, and as Jesus asked Mary and Martha last week, realizing who he is. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Don't you know who I am, Martha? And as they see him who he is, and they apprehend his glory, and they begin to trust him, their lives will begin to reflect that again. And that happens by God's grace, at least for a good long season, I believe, or at least for a season, according to Malachi. And they begin to say in their hearts again, Lord, you are worth it. You are worth it. You are worth it. And and that's, that's the song I know you want to sing in your life, and that's the song I want to sing, that's the song I want our church to sing. You're worth it. Why should I wear these masks and come in? Why should I get online and come in, you know, do this video? You're worth it. Why should I hold back my tongue at my kid when he, oh my gosh, I cannot believe what he has done for the 17th time today. I just want to lay into him. I love my kid. But to be able to say, I'm going to be gentle with my kid because God, you're worth it. I got to tell you, it is really different than simply wanting to be a better parent or be kind to my kid. It is life. To be able to say, I'm going to turn from this image, not because I'm going to get in trouble with my church or my wife or what a scumbag I'll look to people or to my own heart, but to be able to turn from this image online, not because I'm afraid of feeling, simply just because I'm afraid of feeling so shameful, but because he's a treasure. He's, because he's worth it. Because you're worth it. That's life. That's eternal life. To know God, Jesus said. This is eternal life. To really know your worth, Lord. And to know the son that you sent, Jesus Christ. Not just with the mind only, but with the heart. That's eternal life. Don't you want that to be your reason for living? And your choices? Because he's worth it? It it it, it to, to, to ears that haven't seen his glory, that sounds maybe cultic. Or it sounds like chains. Or it sounds constricting to those of you who have seen his glory you know it's life you know it's what you want you know it's what you made for you know it's freedom you know it's joy so that's what i want us to be pushed forward through to this book and you know for 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 every book after <laughs> that we do as a church malachi's not you know this massive radical new about how we should i mean everything we do as a church i want it to feed into this joyful saying in our hearts he's worth it you're worth it god so it's not a long book the themes are great they will dovetail with some of the themes left over from first corinthians especially when we get into the part on marriage and sexual morality so there there will be an excursus at that point i, I anticipate required to stop but but wherever we go in malachi uh or the excursus to Corinthians to compliment Malachi, I want us to recognize that what God is calling us to consider is who he is, to consider the treasure we have in him, and to ask him to cleanse our hearts of ways that we have disregarded him, to heal our eyes of ways we've given into the blindness of his glory. And as we do this, we have great hope. We have great hope. For one thing, I, I just see God doing great things in our church. I don't you know I don't know like God knows where we all are as a church I don't see with his vision, but I don't feel like Malachi when I look at you I don't feel like I've got this burden to tell you you filth, what are you? i I just see God doing great things in our church I see him doing. Great things in some of our marriages i, 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 I i've heard some rejoicing in ways I haven 't heard and rejoicing in a long time in some of our marriages um, you know the 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 way that some of you have stepped into ministry, Deb and Jay with the the CCF studies, um, just the ways that some of you have jumped into wanting to care for others, ton and Daryl, you know what I 'm talking about in just the last week uh, the ways that God has been Already using our church family in ways outside our church, you know Rob and Donna and their ministries to the to the addicted and to recovering the the ways that you know, Jesse Myers comes to our church and he sees that we don't have uh, anybody helping on the worship team the way maybe he could help. So he decides he should learn keyboards so that he can help with the worship team. I mean, who does that? Who comes to a church and says, oh, what do you need on the team? Oh, you need a keyboardist? I mean, that's, can I play, well, if I know how to play keyboards or not, that's where the conversation usually ends. But for Jesse, it goes to, oh, okay, they need a keyboardist. Well, I will learn how to play Piano. <laughs> you know, I'm like, there's just so much beauty and grace in you guys. I and mean, I could go on and on and on. Sarah, I, I've, you know, praised God for you in many ways. I, I just see such beautiful things going on in our church. Um, so I have great hope b- b- because of, of already what I see, you know, in our church and the fact that I, I think I can say, in some ways, like, I'm still a pastor because of, of Kim. <laughs> You know, like I haven't given up on ministry because of Mike and Pam. You know, there's just so much grace here that I see. I don't sense that God is yelling at us in anger this morning. But he's saying to us, you have come this far. Come further in. Come up higher. Come deeper. Let's go. Let's take more ground. You have seen and rejoiced in much of my glory. I want you to see more. I want to tighten this thing up. But even if some among us, even if among us there is a deeper sense that God is grieved at our dishonoring him, that his purposes are, are not condemnation, I, I, I'd want to say to you guys, his purposes are not condemnation and destruction, but healing and restoration. So even if you walk in feeling like, well, I don't, I do feel like I'm grieving the Holy Spirit, I, I want you to know that God very much felt grieved By the people in Malachi's day, and he came to them with an earnest and very real message in order to heal them, in order to restore them, in order to help them, in order to set them right again. And most of all, I'm hopeful because we need to remember, and this is going to be a big challenge for me. Oh, Lord, please help me with this. We remember that, that as we seek to see God better in his glory, We have a vantage point and a covenant that those in Malachi's day, they didn't have. We have available to us the privilege to look on the glory of God in the face of his son. And they didn't have that. We have a better covenant than the people of Malachi's day. They didn't have that. We have a new covenant which is everlasting. They didn't have that. We have a covenant brought not by Moses and cut on tablets of stone and temporary and called by Paul the ministry of condemnation because all the law can do is kill. But, but we have the covenant brought by the Son of God, cut with his own blood, which never ends because our Savior never stops interceding for us to secure and sustain our eternal salvation. The forgiveness that God has made known to us in the Son of God, slain for all our sins, is far greater than the redemption they were able to see through animal sacrifices that could never truly redeem them from sin. The permanent indwelling spirit of the Son of God and promising to never leave you or forsake you provides for a much greater and constant help in our battle to see and treasure the glory of God than they ever had. And it's gonna be a big part of my job as we look at the old, any Old Testament book to, to, to help us see how Malachi's words to a people under the old covenant speak to Jesus and to the people in the new covenant. But, but God's voice, the, the voice in whom we hear through Malachi, I have loved you, I am a father to you, I am a great king. These are the same words, only louder, with more compassion, with more power, with more holiness, that we'll hear from Jesus Christ as we come back to Him in these series. And and I think part of that will be coming to the Lord's table more often through this book, because I'm going to want to guard us from condemnation, the sense of any hopelessness that might be stirred up. I'm just going to want to maybe come more often to holding up that bread and the juice and saying. This is the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. Let's take and hope in it. So we're going to have, Lord willing, we're going to have more times of communion through this book than our normal once a month. Um, But, so let's look forward to the Lord giving us power to say, you are my treasure in greater and deeper ways than he has. Let's pray for that. And please come Tuesday night online or in here and pray for that if you can. Amen.